This podcast is a part of the Podmania Podcasting Network. Check out podmania.co.uk to check out more of our great podcasts, features, reviews, match ratings and previews spanning the crazy and diverse world of professional wrestling. guys and welcome to another episode of the Young Lion Cast, your fortnightly audio source for all things New Japan Pro Wrestling. I am joined by my co-host Chris O'Brien. How are you, Chris? The world's still burning. It is, and I introduce it, has, it by saying it the fortnightly thing. It hasn't been fortnightly in goddamn yeah, weeks. It's, it's, it's been like a month, hasn't it? Like, I think, I think literally we haven't done a classic, so like... What was the last New Japan show? The last New Actually, Japan no, show was New Beginning. Yeah, fuck, we haven't done one since New Beginning because, like, we we did a classic the same night, like, which in retrospect we should have banked. But <laughs> um, then I I recorded a New Japan Cup preview, but literally the day I was editing it, like, I recorded it with um, I forgot his name, but he does you know that New Japan World Extension that makes it easier to navigate. Uh, Danny, hello, Danny, if you're listening. Yeah, I, I recorded it with Danny and lo- lovely book. And I feel really sorry it didn't go out, but literally the day I was doing it, um, New Japan went, oh, by the way, we're not running. <laughs> and it's like, well, what the fuck am I meant to do with this? God I almost burned damn it. my laptop. <laughs> I literally almost burned my laptop. Well, before we before we talk about this, um, I just want to quickly go into literally a, one of the only pieces of news coming out of New Japan because obviously, as we've just said, they haven't run an event uh, since the new beginning in Osaka. Um, so news has come out today that New Japan are cancelling even more dates um, going up to and including May the 3rd and May the 4th, which of course, not only is it Star Wars Day, it's also both wrestling Dontaku shows. Um before I get your thoughts on that, Chris, I just want to quickly say as well that as we talked about on our Twitter earlier today, New Japan are entertaining the idea of running empty arena shows. So, Chris, before you get into that, what's your opinion on them cancelling Dontaku? And then after that, talk to me a little bit about whether you'd be interested in seeing some New Japan empty arena shows. Well, in terms of Dontaku, of course, it was like we, we saw touched on this on the last stardom cast where like we, um the japanese government have been about tackling corona where they kind of have but also like been as lax as they possibly could be because they didn't want to put the olympics at risk and it's only now that the olympics are like right we're not doing anything until next year but they're just clamping down now hmm. and like ultimately new japan's going to be fine and i'd rather have shows cancelled than pandemics getting worse when it comes to like the empty arena stuff, it was cute when this wasn't as scary as it, like when it was like still like thirty people, like in the whole of the country or something. And now it's fou- now the death toll is in the fucking thousands in basically every country. And it's like, well, d- d- but you still need a lot, a lot, a lot of people to host a empty arena show, and you still have a lot of. Um, people in very close quarter and when you look at the New Japan roster it's not a young roster 
like at least with someone like stardom it's sort of like well they're all like 12 years old so it's fine <laughs> whereas you go to like new japan and like sort of like name basically anyone who isn't okada and jay white and they're all fucking ancient it's not only that for me but they obviously aren't going to be able to fly anyone in. So anyone who is currently at home, so I'm thinking Gaijin, so you're thinking Osprey, Sabre Jr., I know that Tamatonga, so presumably Tangaloa as well, aren't there. I assume Bad Luck Farley isn't there. Um, so you're looking at just your Japanese wrestlers. Um, are you going to be able to... Because, you know, New Japan aren't just going to do the one-off show. They're obviously going to do a tour. Are you going to pull together, you know, a four- to six-week tour with a decent roster from just those people. Obviously, they aren't going to risk, you know, people like Tenzan, who's 180, uh, Kojima, you know, people like that. You haven't got Liger anymore. You yeah. haven't got, yeah, you haven't got uh, Nakanishi anymore. So, you, who do you call but, on? Like, even look at, like, look at the main event of last um, Dantaku. Both, both um, Naito and Kanto are pushing. 40. Both will have underlying health issues. Both will probably be, have been told to stay at home because of. <laughs> Exactly. When you take that into account, you haven't got the largest roster to pad out at all. So, I mean, that aside, a lot of what I enjoy about Japanese wrestling, and it sort of leads into our classic match review, the thing that I feed on, on in Japanese wrestling, especially when you haven't got the English commentary, is the reaction of the crowds. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's a weird stereotype that's arisen, and I have no clue where it arose from. But it's this weird stereotype that Jap- by mostly perpetuated by people who don't actually watch Japanese wrestling or watch something like the Tokyo Dome shows, where all the air doesn't really get captured because it's so big. Mm. Um, and yeah, the crowds are, the crowds are really fucking loud. <laughs> like they don't chant, they're not going, they're not fucking going one fall and two sweet and shit. But they're they, they do like chant for the rest of the Saints. They, yay, they cheer the good guys, boo the bad guys, unless it's Tatsu United in, in Osaka. And yeah, like that, they are loud and they do add a lot. And I think that was shown with Stardom doing empty arena shows. Yeah, I mean, looking at the Cinderella, the Cinderella tournament, I think, especially the final suffered a lot from not having a crowd to play off because, you know, we spoke about this on the Stardom cast, how they'd they'd built, you know, almost a miniature, very basic storyline throughout the tournament that Julia was going to be the babyface that won and Tora was going to be the, you know, the sort of dominant heel that needed to be vanquished in the final. And I think the crowd, come that final, um, would have played a huge part in it, but I feel it felt you know, a little bit flat. And I think that was in part due to the fact that the audience weren't there or, you know, there was an audience, but what was it? 538 people in attendance, you know, yeah, in, in Corican, that's less than half. Yeah, no, that's what Corican can hold up. It holds close to 2000, doesn't it? So that's uh, 1600, I think is a, or is it 1800 as a sellout? Well, it's, it's close to a quarter. It's closer to a quarter full than half full. It's my point. And yeah, and again, I keep the, like even taken away from empty arena shows, they kind of just, not only are, like be so played out. Also, like it's very hard. Like you look at all the, not just the wrestlers who will be close together, or the ring crew. Um, maybe we're gonna have commentary or something. And like 
it still involves a lot of people being very close together and those people will be oh, like everyone knows an Iris person so like there's a decent possibility those people will pass it on and it's just not worth it like just put everything on pause for a while because especially like with what we'd have online it wouldn't be a satisfying sh- like you'd, you'd have shows with really good match quality but it wouldn't be a satisfying memorable show because you don't have the um, you can't go forward with your current storylines or whatever you had planned. Like, I understand there's like no storylines because new beginnings have ended and then everyone's going to go into the cup. But like, so, like, for example, you could just throw on a random say Okada versus Sonata match, and yeah, it's probably going to be a great match. But like, will we be talking about it at the end of the year? No, probably not. Like, you're as good. Like, and you're not going to make any money. Like, honestly, what they're doing now, I think, works. I think putting up the um. English commentary of classic matches because that seems to be a lot of people's biggest barrier to watching old matches is having no English commentary. Mm. So, like, what doing stuff like that, doing like the English talk shows, I think that's the best thing to do, at least until you can make sure you're not fucking someone by doing this. Yeah, I mean, looking ahead into the future now, I'd be very, very surprised if New Japan did anything before Wrestle Dynasty. Yeah. Honestly, I'd be I'd be surprised if Super Juniors goes ahead of the Olympics are off. I think <clears throat> you look now at the two biggest events left of the year, and that's Wrestle Dynasty in August and the G1 Climax in October. You have mm. pre- presumably the Madison Square Garden show is going to cost a significant amount of money. I mean, looking at it logistically, it's going to be presumably quite difficult anyway because you know we don't know where we're going to be in august and also even if everything has cooled down we don't know if travel restrictions will have been lifted by that point but say especially especially since america is doing a lot of villainization of like asian regions i wouldn't be surprised if he who shall not be named um (laughs) just shuts down like all of um oriental asia because he's that kind of reactionary butthole mm, true <laughs> um i mean yeah but it might, even if that does take place they aren't going to want to jeopardize that show you know having build it basically as a second wrestle kingdom show imagine if he did like a um new beginning in usa 2019 <laughs> Oh my god, the main event John- is an eight-man elimination tag. Yeah. <laughs> Involving fucking Jonathan Gresham, Clark Connors, and Jeff Cobb. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh. each girl can't, um, Tatsu Nile gets stripped of the AWGP championship because he can't turn up to defend it. <laughs> so it comes, down, it comes down to Clark Connors versus Cole Cabana. That was the other bit of news I wanted to talk to you about. I wanted to talk to you about this before I went on, before we uh, came on air, but never mind. Um, Jordan Devlin is being stripped of the Cruiserweight Championship because yeah, so, he can't get to America to defend it. That's fucking so, bollocks. That is so unfair. Because that is not something WWE have a history of doing. <laughs> also, um, he put on Twitter with um, holding the belt, which, by the way, looks so much better now that it's black and not purple. But like he was holding the belt, and he was like, the one and only. And then Flash Morgan Webb saw the comments going, that's not what Regal said. And then Javelin just replied with, I'll chin Regal. You're a confident man if you think you can beat up William Regal. Well, quite. Um, speaking of people who you are brave if you want to try and beat them up, let's get into our classic match reviews then, Chris, shall we? Segway. Oh my. But it's like I don't know which one you're talking about because to be, to be fair, both men. Are, but I actually have a story. I have several stories spawning off from this. 
Well, let's let's oh plow full steam ahead into the first of our three like reviews, Ogawa did. like Ogawa did. Um, so we're talking, of course, about uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling Wrestling World in the Tokyo Dome from 1999, the 4th of January 1999, in front of 62,500 people. Um, and we're talking about the infamous match uh, between Naoya Ogawa and Shinya Hashimoto, which went to a no contest in 6 minutes and 58 seconds. Now, before Chris delves quite wholeheartedly into the backstory of this match, which is presumably the main reason you chose this match, not because you wanted to watch it. To be fair, like, um, I... The way we pick the matches for this is I give Rob categories, he picks categories, and then I give him options within said categories. He never picks the ones I want him to pick. Cause I, and it's it's so weird. So, like, not I try to veer it towards the ones I want, and he always seems to go, no, nah, I'm, I'm really going to fuck up. Because I'll, like, I'll start planning the podcast in my mind before I send them. And then um, Rob will decide, nah, I'm going to fuck Chris up. And... <laughs> just pick some like the thing i didn't want to pick like of all the options this is by far the least funny but also has the least the most to talk about it's weird but yeah (laughs) it is it's it was a it was a very very weird one now anyone who Um, listens to these podcasts knows that at the end of our review of each match we'll give our rating at a 10 and don't forget you can check out those match ratings at www.podmania.co.uk um i think we can safely say chris we're not rating we, this we're one. We're not we rating this one. We can't rate this one. Um, before we get into the match, though, do you want to know what else was on this card? Uh, I'm looking at it now on Cage Match. It's it's an eclectic card, considering it's a Tokyo Dome. Yeah. Um, that's the weirdest thing about New Japan. Because, like, um, Antonio Inoki is a, was a very, very ambitious um, booker. Mm. Like, both booker and... For example, like... Him and Giant Baba, um, two of the biggest stars in wrestling, went on to make two, the two biggest companies in Japan. Um, Baba very much sort of knew his own limitations. Like, for example, as he got older, he'd push himself further down the card. And, like, he knew people wanted to see him. But what, he, what he'd do is basically wrestle on, like, opening tags and then, like, go by the merch table. And then, like, he'd run the Tokyo Known sometimes, but not often. And then, like, for the most part, he'd stick to, like, booting. He's basically stick to what he knows will make money and doesn't want to push the boat out too far. Like, the biggest um, outlandish thing he ever did was make him sour beat Jumbo. But, Anoki, on the other hand, is batshit fucking crazy. Well, if ever there was evidence of that, it's this match, Chris. Yeah, okay. So, um, we, we haven't said the kind. So, like, there's some interesting ones. For example, NWO Japan was still a thing with Tenzan and Kojima. Not just a thing, in the semi-main. In the semi-main. You know, who is in the main, Rob? Oh, fucking hell. The main event is the IWGP Heavyweight Championship match between Keiji Muto and the IWGP Heavyweight Champion at this time. This This was 2000's New Japan Pro Wrestling for you. Fucking Scott Norton. I think it's like a lot of a few matches on here seem quite um tasty. For example, Wagner Jr. and um Kendall Cashin in the IWGP junior tag title um picture. That's like especially Wagner Jr. that sounds fun. There's a Liger match, they're always good. Um Kensuke Zazaki versus Anita, that had to that had to have been good. 
No, it, no, it wasn't. Because <laughs> Suzaki won by DQ. But in less than good. six minutes. What, what was the point in having a special referee? <laughs> I must admit, Chris, of all the matches on this card, I the only I mean, one I'm really Fry interested in what? was Juice. Like That's right. Don Fry on this card. Why? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. Brian Johnson, isn't he a referee? Isn't he the singer of ACDC? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only match I'm interested on in uh, on this is the Jushin Thunder Liger versus Koji Kanemoto match. Because Liger in Tokyo. Exactly. Anyway, just, that's just not what we're team. talking about. Chris, talk to me about Ogawa versus Hashimoto. Right, so... This has sort of started as a feud. Um, this was a much-anticipated rubber match. We had two um, singles matches before. Well, we had several. No, no, we had two. We had six all in all, believe it or not. This is the third one. We had we had three after this. Was this supposed to be the rubber match? Yeah. Um, so Ogawa bet Hashimoto at um, Battle Formation in 1997 in the Tokyo Dome. Okay. And then... Um, Hashimoto as champion defeated Ogawa um, again in the Tokyo Dome. So this was that like Tokyo Dome trilogy. And obviously it was the Osaka Dome, rather. So but it was sort of a trilogy of different domes. And now we're back in the Tokyo Dome. Much, and This is a very hotly anticipated feud. Like, it's weird how like buried in history, like you look at like All Japan and they sort of ide- um, idealize the 90s, but it's weird because Shinya Hashimoto was by far the biggest of the three musketeers at the time, but is by far the least discussed nowadays. Well, I think there's a reason for that, and okay. I think this is this has got a lot to do with that, Chris. You're beating about the bush, my friend. Yes, I am. Right, first of all, Rob, I need to introduce you to the idea of Enochiism. I know you already know about it, but people at home, can you explain to the people at home what Enochiism uh, is, please? Um, I'd rather not. <laughs> Right, so Antonio Inoki. Sorry, you proper put me on the spot then. I panicked. <laughs> so Antonio Inoki very much believed that um, wrestling must simulate shoot fighting. Yeah. Which makes complete... Well, because um, Ogawa is a judoka. He's a big judo champion. Um, and you look at Shinya Hashimoto and you look at him and think, yeah, he could probably kick your ass. Um, he's, it's either that or he's going to nick your rice. Um, <laughs> uh, so... Um, this sort of became a natural feud, and if you look at this match before it became a shoot, they were like shoot fighting, like pretend shoot, like um Josh Barnett's Bloodsport, or like I mean, no, a Suzuki match, something like that. It was, it was like a, and like fast over Anoki, um Antonio Noki envisioned, and like on the surface, that's completely fine. Like that just that's just a house style. Strong style is very much like a shoot oriented style, so like kicking, a lot of kicks, a lot of strikes, a lot of submissions. It's basically MMA. Where Inoki went mad was he would start putting his wrestlers in real fights. Right. So, like, Yuji so like Nagata, Jushin Thunderliger, all these people who can't, like, shoot fight were put into shoot fights. And if they lost, they would lose their title. Okay. But the reason <laughs> Keiji Muto fucking fled to All Japan, and, like, that's when All Japan was dying. Um, like, Inoki is in crippled... Like we'll get into this next time I do a story time because like Inoki isn't basically crippled. New Japan, it's 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 honestly a wonder they survived. But at one point, I think we drew less than ten thousand people to Tokyo Dome. Wow, Jesus like, Christ! 
to put that into perspective, imagine if um, less than 10,000 people showed up to a mania. Apart, like, disregarding last week's mania. <laughs> Awful. It, exactly. And so, I am beating about the bush, because you know what happened to this? <laughs> so, um, I should point out, it's never been confirmed that this happened. Because I, I don't want Antonio Noki to, to fucking come up to my house in his dinner frame and kick my ass. But, like, allegedly, <laughs> um, Ogawa, again, legit judoka, was told to shoot on Hashimoto without Hashimoto being told that Ogawa was going to shoot. It was the most um, uncomfortable thing I've ever watched. Yeah, right. So, like, it just starts with Ogawa just actually kicking um, Hashimoto. And to be fair, that could be construed as a botch. But then Ogawa got Hashimoto sort of trapped in a sort of a, um, a leg hold. I don't know, what, but like it's sort of like down as if he was going to go for a power driver, but he sort of wraps himself in the ropes and sort of held on for dear life. Several times this happened. So, yeah, several times. And like it, it led to Hashimoto being in a wreck on the floor. And like we're not talking about any of any of any more of a match because, um, to be completely fair, <laughs> Ogawa started shooting what two minutes into the seven minutes match. So there was just seven. There was just five minutes of Ogawa shooting. There was a point during this match that you could see Hashimoto in his eyes almost think, "I'm in a bit of trouble here," because he kept going towards Ogawa's legs to try and almost. Almost keep himself out of trouble, and also to try and negate no, it, his it kicks. Was, you know, exactly. He was trying to get like take the legs out from under him, like because because um, all of a sudden, like um, Hashimoto was forced to have to shoot back because, like, what else? Literally, what else can you do? Like until the people realize, um, like the people backstage realize what happened, and they did, and we ran out. What else are you meant to do? You can't run because then you ruin your um, reputation. Yeah, and, then, and like in New Japan, where like that, that would probably result in Hashimoto never get pushed again. Like I can't imagine what must have been going through Hashimoto's head at the time, in front of sixty-two thousand people. Yeah, and like we've only seen one Hashimoto match on this um, segment, but how good is he? He's very, very good. He's, he's very good. Vastly he's underrated a... when he's you know when he's put up against Keiji Muto and uh, Choshu. He's very, very underrated. Um, do you, uh, yeah, no, that's the thing. You put him against like, ch- other people at the time, like Chono or um, Muto, and then you have like, yeah, um, rising stars like Tenzan and Kojima, and then like, yeah, your juniors like Liger, and like, he, it just leads to Hashimoto being lost in the shit, which again is weird because he was the big draw for New Japan at the time. Yeah. Like, this feud did do gangbusters. And then just, it turned into a fight. So, so like, um, Ogawa represented UFO, which <laughs> you laugh, Rob, I do, and, I do. And, and you shit. Um, I'm trying to. I had what it meant in front of me, but I have lost it. Um, <laughs> it's like Universal Fighting something organization. I think that that would make sense. Um, and he would take the place in different fight style fights, which basically meant MMA, and. So, like, those guys came down, which is why you saw people wearing shirts that just said UFO on it. Yes. And then um, New Japan guys came down. You could see, like, 
it's super weird because like Tiger Mask still had his mask on. Yeah, he was not breaking kayfabe at all. It's like this is a shoot, but like thing is, if he came out without his mask, no one would know. But anyway, um, it's a bit weird, but because like then like allegedly, um, Azuka, um, the one you hate, Takashi Azuka, um, had, ended up getting um Ogawa's Kahneman, um, I'm gonna butcher this, Kizuniri, um, Murakami hospitalized i've never loved izuka more izuka more yeah <laughs> and then like um new japan um ricky choshu came out and it's like i'm not being funny ricky choshu's must have been 108 at this point and he i was still very i was very scared for every ufo ma- um guy's life before like everything was to sort of <laughs> but yeah like how like weird a situation like and it's disgustingly common how often shoot things happen in new japan but like what uh, and not only in new japan just in japanese wrestling in general like stardom's had what had a shoot issue i think new um all japan's had one um new japan's had several actually <laughs> like so many like it's, it's disgusting how many shoot incidents new japan had um but like what makes this one especially weird is the the head of the company told someone to shoot on his ace. Why was that? I it I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just Inoki, innit? It's, it's it's just like literally the best answer I can give you is because it's Inoki. Like that's literally the only answer I can remotely give you. Just ridiculous. Like, I have looked Rob, I looked like an hour before we came on and it's like, right, I'm going to actually see if there's an answer to this. There's no answer to this. I can't find one. If anyone has one, someone please tell me. Because like, this is up there with the great wrestling mysteries. Why the fuck did Anoki have someone shoot on his ace? Like, to put this in perspective, imagine if um, Vince had Brock Lesnar um, legitimately like take knock out Roman Reigns for some reason. Or Randy Orton at SummerSlam. Or- I mean, to be fair, wouldn't you want to knock out Randy Orton? Um, <laughs> so like, you're scared of Anoki, but not Randy Orton? Yeah, Randy Orton's a fucking punk. Um, oh god! <laughs> <laughs> or like, or like, in, imagine if like um, Triple H had Killer Cross shoot on Gargano, or if um, Gato had Jay White shoot, but had Suzuki shoot on Okada. Like, there was no logical sense here i think i think it was to make Ogawa. he wanted ogawa to because like um at this point hashimoto was very close to taking time off he was gonna go away um create zero one and then like the plan was always for him to come back and to have his like time in the like because basically it was how can we miss you if you don't go away basically Mm. so um but he was gonna have him go away, set up zero one, and so um so he would still have an income. But like the whole idea was for like um probably Hashimoto to come back and have a zero one New Japan feud, which would probably end with zero one going bankrupt because that's what hap- just what happened when New Japan feuded with the company. Um and then Hashimoto was like, Yeah, I'm gonna go away and make zero one, but you know what, I'm not fucking coming back. I heard there was this was all sort of around this. I'm sure Zero One played an integral part of this because originally, I'm sure Hashimoto wanted Zero One to be 
almost a development territory, didn't he, for no, New Japan? Again, I get, exactly. The idea was they were meant to be um, working together. It's just a case of they wanted Hashimoto away from like the IWGP championship picture, but they had nothing else for him. So it's like, yeah, go away and do this, and when you come back, we can have you feuding. Because, like, again, it's like the Okada problem. Everything was getting stale, and then he was like, well, we can't have that. And then, like, yeah, just for some reason, yeah, kick the shit, shit out of the biggest star of the night. Just utterly baffling. Utterly, yeah. utterly baffling. And watching it, like, you can see there's a moment when um, Hashimoto rolls out to the ramp, and he's just, he's covered in blood, and it's it's an uncomfortable watch. Like, you get people who watch, you know, things like the big cast versus Enzo feud and go, oh, it's uncomfortable to watch this. No, no, no. This Wait, whoa, 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 was uncomfortable people... to watch. Hang on, what? People said that? Oh, that was on Twitter, yeah. Oh, this is uncomfortable to watch because they were friends. Oh. <laughs> that was a genuine tweet I saw during that feud. I've always remembered that. Have they ever watched wrestling? <laughs> well... I don't know if you were like, around, Chris, because I don't think you were born when Enzo and Cass started feuding. Um, <laughs> I was eight, all right. We can't go a single... I'll have you know, I, hang on, what, what was it, 2017? I was... Shit, 20. I was 20 years old. He says this, guys. He wasn't. I was! <laughs> it was only three years ago. Um. So, Chris... <laughs> This wasn't a good match at all. No, no. We, we, but we can't rate it because it's not actually a match. It's not. I mean, this wasn't Hashimoto's last match in New Japan, though, was it? It wasn't his last match against Ogawa. No, that's what I mean, because I'm sure he had a match against Ogawa in Zero Next. One. Um, Not according to Cage Match. Or was it, in the, or was it, for, or is it NWA? He had a match against Ogawa in the Tokyo Dome next year. Really? So it wasn't, not only was it not his last match for New Japan, it also wasn't his last match for New Japan in the Tokyo Dome against yeah, Ogawa. Looking at um, something, like, we want, like, Onoki basically wanted Ogawa to be the next big thing. This is how he's seen it happening. And then, um, yeah, Ogawa went on for a year was a big nasty bastard and then beat Hashimoto by knockout at the next year's Tokyo Dome. Well, this did lead to um, Zero One and Noah having a mini partnership where um, Hashimoto, in a weird reverse of fortune, kicked someone so hard that um, the other dude took the the match home early because he didn't want to keep getting kicked by Hashimoto. (laughs) Well, in the video package leading up to this match, um, at least the one um, on the Daily Motion feed that we've put up on Twitter, um, it shows some footage of the Hashimoto and Agawa match from, I think, November of the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, fucking hell, those kicks from Hashimoto look stiff. Jesus. Yeah. Like, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, if I was Ogawa, yeah. I'd have gone, I'd have shoot on uh, Hashimoto. Fucking but kicks. <laughs> I like how you, you, you've suddenly started defending Ogawa. <laughs> if he wants to shoot, let him shoot, all right? I mean, yeah. Like, honestly, this is just an oddity in Japanese wrestling history. And unfortunately, it's not like at least once a decade, you're going to, you 
at the least you have a shoot incident somewhere. Like, name a company we've had that problem, and it's just a bit gross. I, like, I, this is the first shoot incident I can think of that actually didn't involve Inoki. It's it's like, one of those things of, like, you always talk about, isn't it, when you talk about Inoki? Like, Antonio Inoki versus um, the Great Antonio, where the Great Antonio decided not to sell for Inoki, and then Inoki was like, all right, I'm going to beat the shit out of this fat bastard. The man legitimately known to shoot on people. Why would you yeah, not no, sell he... for him? Because <laughs> he's massive. He was like, yeah, he's only small. I mean, we. I remember we. By the way, um, Bill Burr, I think he had like a commentary over his match, and it's fucking hilarious. <laughs> the thing is, he doesn't. He doesn't actually know about wrestling. He just heard about this, and he was like, "Oh, this is amazing." Ridiculous. Shall we move on to? An actual wrestling match, Chris. Let's move on to an actual wrestling match. We should look at something good from New Japan next, shouldn't we? And that's exactly what we are going to do. So we are looking back. We talk classic matches. We're actually just going back a few months, a modern really. Classic. Yeah, a modern classic. We're talking um, taking a match from the G1 Climax 2019 night. Seven block A action. So we're talking 20th of July 2019 from Corican Hall in front of 1,722 people. And it's the main event between Kazuchika Okada and Will Ospreay. Okada defeating Ospreay in 21 minutes and 56 seconds this is the kind of shit rob likes chris <laughs> i like flippy shit and hard kicks this this was great mate this, this was match great makes me rock hard <laughs> um i'm gonna just trying to get the right one up on cage match um because i did i opened cage match and it turns out i had it on the fucking um, the anniversary one the anniversary one yeah and now they have they have so many tag matches together jesus christ there we go. There Five, you go. Be born. So, what? First of all, we should talk about how because we never got. I, one reason I picked this one was, um, well, p- partly I was expecting you to pick the Kenta Miyahara versus Jake Lee match, but secondly, um, we never because we weren't doing the Young Lion at the time, we never got to talk about how insane last year's G One was. Last one, last year's G One was, with its consistency, the best G One I've ever seen. And I've gone back and watched G1s all the way from, pardon me, 25 all the way through to 29. You watched, like, the full tournament? Yes. Oh. That's a fascinating thing that you've actually never told me. Um... Oh, I apologise. <laughs> 27. That's my, that's my personal favourite G1 because the memories attached to it. Like, girls or just... <laughs> Whenever you say memories like that, it just makes you think... Did Chris get laid whilst watching G127? <laughs> Someone saw Evil beating Okada and was like, you know what? He's Chris, Chris has long hair like Evil. He's fucking irresistible. No. Um, Just make sweet love to me, Chris. No, it's the first G1 I had the opportunity to like watch as it was happening. Like, yeah. The other one, like this, I think, I believe it's the first one after world release. Before you had to pay like 70 quid for um, the shows. And I was like, bit steep and then like nowhere it was just before people gave a shit so i could not find a decent torrent to save my life um and then this time it's like oh shit it's all in world and then like it's super weird because like this is when i still watch raw occasionally 
like I tune in randomly and I was like, huh, I wonder what happened with this Kurt Angle storyline where people keep calling him and saying, I'm going to expose you. And then it turned out Jason Jordan was Kurt Angle's son. And it's like, you know what? Fuck, I'm done. And I didn't watch again until the Rumble. But um, then G127 happened. It's like, oh my God, all this good shit. With the exception of the start. Like, it even started, I believe, with Yoshihashi versus Yuji Nagata, which was still a great match. I mean, we've said many, many times on this show that Yuji Nagata is massively, massively underrated as the person who can still go now. Him and Kojima are really, really good still now. Yes. Um, But anyway, yeah, we're going to have to talk about G127 properly at some point. But G129, first of all, like it, it was it was very much a J one of surprising um, ma- good matches in surprising places. For example, the first match was Lance Archer versus Osprey, which turned out to be fucking great. It did, um, and you're absolutely right. Matches that had no right to be good were still fantastic. Goto, for example, who we lambasted for large portions of this, this podcast, before, had a great this, tournament. This is before um, G and G one stood for Goto, and then like throughout the tournament it eventually did to st- start to stand for Gota. like his Ishii match of course was good but then like his Jay White match he like he's had three matches with Jay White two of them have been piss poor but the one he had in G1 was great and I, I remember texting you when because I, I was a couple of days behind because I went to the progress show um, in Newcastle like for de- when the G1 started so I was a bit behind and I just messaged you going fuck where's this Goto being it was it it was the rebirth of Goto as we know, and it unfortunately it's a shame that it only yielded a couple of days never open weight championship yeah. reign, but never mind. Um like then you had like Shingo being amazing, of course you had Ibushi. Um Sonata was having the year of his life. It didn't translate a lot in the G one apart until he went against Okada and also Ibushi. Um Kenta was starting to come out as was got more heelish as the tournament went went on, which um came to being one of the best story beats of last year um last year when he beat up Shibata. Um Okada was being as good as Okada's ever been. Lance Archer was a surprising standout. John Moxley um just going on a tear. Um Taichi had his coming out party. I'm not the same that because I love him. But also like seriously you can't deny how good Taichi's G like Taichi's G one would have been up there in like the tw- in like um A block in the twenty I'm sorry, sorry, G128? Um, G128 had was an amazing B-block, like, matches of the year twice every night. Um, and then you had the A-block, which were basically propped up by Okada and Tanahashi. Yeah, because it was like, the Maccabe block, wasn't it? Yeah, no, Maccabe, Hashi, um, and Fale all in that one block. And, like, I love Michael Elgin. He can't have a... He needs someone... Um, compelling to have a good match. Um, Jay White was significant, like despite many people seeing that as when he got good, was significantly dumbing down his normal um, antics to sort of fit into the confines of a G1. Um, and then, like for some reason, like and and, and like in reality, White, Tanahashi, and um, Okada were the only people who were remotely getting into the final. So most matches ended up not ma- mattering. I and mean, then he didn't even have a champion in the block to make their matches interesting. Mm. So, like, just in terms of how that was, but then here you had, like, um, champions in both blocks. Um, you had 
Um, because who was the, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember who the IC champion was at the time. Um, the IC champion was um, I, no, yes, it was because no, then he yeah it was night he beat he beat Ibushi yeah, um because then well, yeah, yeah so yeah the the IC champion in one block and the world champion in the other block who was the other champion at the time it was Ishi so he was in the other block as well and then the US champion was Chief so he had more. Um, champions in one block, but having the world champion in the other block sort of made that okay. And then in like that block, he had like Abushi, Okada, Osprey. Wasn't the US champion at... Moxley? Mm, oh fuck yeah, he was. So you had like an equal, dis- but you still had most of the champions in one block. Yeah. So, but like when you ha- a block made up for it because you had like what Tanahashi could have conceivably won, Kenta could have like Kenta could, was like a dark horse, but he could he could have still went through. I could have seen that like if they wanted to push him to the moon, Ibushi, um, Okada, Osprey, poss- like there was more people I could foresee winning. Yeah, absolutely. So, so like yeah, just the way the blocks were set out were perfect, and then like in that in a block like. Tanahashi was a bit compromised. Zack Sabre Jr. was a bit um, bogged down by Brexit. Um, <laughs> so, like, but you had, like, Ibushi, Okada, and Osprey being match of the year machines throughout the whole um, G1. And it, especially over these two Corican shows. Yes. Yeah. It's worth saying, if you're ever going to watch G1 and you, like, understand, like, the um, need sometimes to skip shows is there, never skip the Corican shows. They always produce the best matches of the tournament because, like, you also on the next, like, um, the night, um, a couple of nights before, you had um, Osprey versus Abushi, and then like, couple, either the night before or the night after, I can't quite remember. You had Ishi and Moxley. Yeah, and okay, you every, can, go, you can yeah. go now. Sorry, it's all right. Every every night of this G one had match of the year contenders, and it's only because it's such a huge block of wrestling that sometimes you forget just how good some of these matches are. I mean, you know, the end of year awards, things like Shingo versus Ishii wasn't mentioned as our match of the year. Naito versus Shingo. You know, I've been meaning to talk to you about this. I think tournament matches should be counted differently just because of context. Because actually, I'm gonna go. I'll go into this um, when we get into the actual match. But like the context of this match made it much better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well the commentary team of Rocky, um, Kevin Kelly, Kelly and uh, Chris made this so much yeah. better with their commentary. And obviously, Rocky talking from a chaos point of view, it really, really did help this match along. So let's get into the match then. For me, there was a couple of stories heading into this. There was the progression of Offspray, and they kept saying, so before, Offspray was always facing Okada to prove himself, even at the anniversary show. Yet now, he is facing Okada legitimately as a threat, someone who can beat Okada. Okada is going through this tournament. They are talking about him being the first champion in, I think they said, 19 years to actually win the G1 Climax. He was at 4-0, I think, or 3-0. Yeah, he was at he was at eight points at this point. Yeah, and Osprey had 1-1, lost 2. So, you know, Okada was very, very much the big dog, imperious, and Osprey had everything to prove, but there was that undertone brought forward by the commentary team that Osprey could be the person to defeat Okada. And this, we talked about Osprey's year last year, he had an absolutely phenomenal year last year, and obviously yeah, it's, now it's, he's moved it's up. Not a hot take either, like, it's the most cliche thing you can say. 
on a wrestling podcast. Oh, Os- well, Osprey had an amazing 2019. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone is saying, but everyone's saying it for a reason because it's damn true. But here, I feel this match, this storyline was the thing that was the coming out party for Will Osprey. Yeah, well, I should. we should first of all say, like, going back, I want to say until, like, um, Tokyo Dome the year before, you could probably pick a 10 out of 10 match from Will Ospreay every month. Yeah, 100%. That's how, that's how insane this man is right now. And um, they, these two had faced earlier in the year in what I felt was a disappointing match. Did you ever watch that match? Which Bobby one? Ospreay, Okada Ospreay at the Cup. Um, yes. Yes, I did. And it, what, it, what do you think of it? It wasn't disappointing. It was just I think they'd had such a great match at the anniversary show the year before, and or the year almost yeah the year before, and yeah, and they, it wasn't was comparable. Almost, I think is yeah. the problem. It was essentially the same match, um, and also there was an issue with there was no way in how Osprey would like when, for example, when you saw the anniversary show as a novelty. It's sort of just what happens at the anniversary show nowadays, whereas um, at the cup. There was no way in how Osprey was going through. There was no way in how they were having... Because, um, like, Sonata was very obviously winning on one side of the block. There was no fucking way they were having anyone but Okada face Jay White at the dome. At MSG, rather. So, like, there was no way Osprey was going to win. It was in front of, like... A, it was in a weird building. Yeah. Like, it didn't seem like there was too many people there. And, like, just a mix of, like, outside factors hindered it. Whereas this, it's in Corican Hall, which is always going to be a hot crowd. It, you know, heart of Tokyo, like, small, sweaty arena. Um, you, then you have um, the fact that it's the G1, and the G1 is just where surprises happen. Hmm. Yeah. Like, um, for example, every year in Osaka, in the G1, for the past, I think, four years, the IWGP champion has been pinned by an outsider. The outsider is normally Ishii, but he's been pinned. <laughs> Who can do a really good match at King of Pro Wrestling? Ishii! <laughs> and yet he never gets a King of Pro Wrestling match. No, it's, it's always, always power struggle. Yeah, it's... No. Uh, no destruction. Yeah, no. But one time he got... Because, like, it's, he's pinned it twice, I think. It was Okada and Omega. Of course he's not going to face Okada. And then they're like... We'll throw him out of Mega at Destruction. And then, like, they had that weird triple threat at King of Pro Wrestling because Ibushi beat um, Omega and had a claim to Omega. And then Cody just walked in the ring going, Hey, bro, we're friends now. I know I've already had a failed shot at this championship, but can I have another one? Without any legitimate claim? Um, like, there was no legitimate claim. No, there wasn't. This match, it was... <laughs> I, just, I can't describe how much I enjoyed it on second watching. Osprey pulled out all of the stops here, and there was a beautiful bit of camera work where Osprey had just done the second Oz cutter, and Okada had kicked out. By the way, Okada's last minute, last second kickouts are fucking phenomenal, especially in this match. Oh. Completely on point. Um, One of the best kickouts in the biz. Yeah. There's a moment where Osprey sits up, his hair's all over the place, and he looks just desperate. And it's brilliant. It just the look on his face is 
how the fuck do I put Okada away here? Because in the entire lead-up to the end of the match, Osprey was in charge. Yeah. And that's actually, you say that, like, both men were very, um, were in charge at various points. Well, what I like about this match, where, like, the previous match, you just sort of, you could predict every spot that was going to happen. Like, they just sort of went through the motions. Because, like, it's, I don't think it's unfair to say both these men have a formula. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. And, like, that's not a bad thing. Like, um, but then, like, how good matches are is either how good they harness the formula or how good they subvert the formula. And these two men just sort of, saw each other seeing those spots and went, you know what, you're just not going to do them. Sometimes. I mean, and we saw it in this match. There's the bit where um, Osprey does, you know, the flip onto the ropes and bounces back as a sort of front, as though he's going to go over the top rope. And, you know, yeah. it's it's a very tired trope that we seemingly have to have every single time Osprey has a match. But... On the flip side, his reversals to get out... I mean, his reversal from the Rainmaker into the Spanish Fly, I don't care who you are, if you see this match for the first time and you don't pop for that, are you even a wrestling fan? It was so seamless. It was beautiful. It's amazing. But the thing is, they did that at the um, anniversary show. What got me is when he flipped over... And like normally when he flipped, or like Alvaro Rainmaker, he flipped over. That's already cool. Normally he just goes for a powerbomb. And like, I was like, okay, he's going for a powerbomb. No, he goes for Stormbreaker. I'm like, holy shit, this match might be ending. You you legitimately thought, and again, the commentary team did a fantastic job. Okada is in imperious form here. He's 4-0, 3-0, sorry. No, 4-0, I was right. And he is completely untouchable. No one can touch him at this point. And you genuinely think that this junior heavyweight, because at this point Osprey is the junior heavyweight junior champion, champion, is going to pin Okada. As soon as he gets him up for the Stormbreaker and Okada doesn't wriggle out of it, the, you know, instantly, which people do, they wriggle out of it instantly, you're like, oh, it's, you know, the reversal mm. spot. Okada doesn't. He waits and he waits. And you're almost like, fucking hell, is Osprey going to hit this? And then he wriggles out of it, hits the tombstone. But it's just everything they did was timed so beautifully. Like, I've never, it flowed like water. It was beautiful. And, um, but also, like, we didn't, like, Osprey didn't wrestle like a junior for the whole thing. Like, I think that was. Like before, it was sort of like the novelty of a junior wrestling like a junior against a heavyweight. Whereas now, Osprey's throwing chops like he's fucking Walter. I mean, does it matter? Like a chop made the crowd chant for him. That chop, that's exactly where I was going to go with this. I was just going to say the start of this match, Okada sort of treats Osprey like, as you said, that novelty, that junior heavyweight. And then that moment where Okada, because they had the spot with the chops where Osprey's laying into Okada with the chops, and Okada's just completely no-selling them. And then later on, Osprey lights him up with this chop and he catches it, so it thunders around this arena, and the Corican crowd absolutely explode, chanting his name. And you're right, this was the moment that Okada was like, right, Osprey is so much more than a junior heavyweight. You know, he is a fucking heavyweight, and I'm going to have to stop dicking around now. Okay, and yeah. as Rocky said, you know, playtime's over. 
Yeah, exactly. And like Osprey started like outpowering Okada. Like at first he was outmaneuvering. Like there's this beef up, you know the sort of I call it the Tajiri thing, but it's like a hand he does a handspring into like the into Giri. Yes. Um he but um so he did that. Okada ducks, but Osprey somehow sees this and fucking backflips over him like he's a fucking Power Ranger <laughs> and then just does it again. Just such amazing chemistry. Such amazing chemistry. Because, like, we, we talked about him in the last match, how there's this um, weird um, stereotype where Japanese wrestlers, uh, uh, Japanese wrestling has, like, no crowd interaction. This match sort of busts another um, Japanese wrestling trope where it's just sort of um, two people in black pint tights beating the shit out of each other and people enjoy it for some barbaric thing. No, but like there was despite the fact this match moved so fast there was logical movement and everything and like there's this weird thing where people think um wrestling fans of today so like me like you uh just into the most gippable parts of wrestling we just want the, those big flips and yeah we want those big flips but also like they ring super hollow like um and re- wrestling is fake fighting at the end of the day anyone who says otherwise just doesn't fundamentally have eyes and um so, like, in kayfabe, like, Will Osprey flip, um, flipping around someone to outmaneuver them is no different from Ishii knocking the shit out of them with a forearm. So, like, I don't... I I, I, I forgot where I was going with this. But... <laughs> You're just shitting on the basic premise of wrestling, I believe, was your, no, uh, was not, your end I'm game. Not, I'm, I'm not... No, no, it's just a case of, like, I'm trying to illustrate, like, for example, I used to be one of those people who didn't like Osprey. Like, I liked him for the Jimmy Havoc stuff in progress, but I was, in my head, I just, I sort of justified that as Jimmy Havoc being such a good heel. Whereas, like, when he started, like, just getting me into it, it's, like, it's, it's something about to realize, it's like, okay, so, like, the flip-offs he does are as legitimate as, like, the strong style shit I love as well, so having the two mix is just sort of perfect and then like the power game he had like where he got Okada up into a tombstone position and started kneeing him it was here that you really really noticed how much weight he'd put on like muscle mass that Osprey had put on like you didn't know you notice it kind of in Super Junior because he's bigger than every other junior apart from Shingo um who absolutely um, is not a junior. <laughs> no, when Jingo went to the G1, I'm like, he just looks at that and well, you know what? This feels right. <laughs> He's in the Ishii mold, isn't he? Yeah, no, that's thing. He's perfect for the Nova division, which Osprey wasn't. That was, that was a weird part of last year. Um, but yeah, I, this match is just so... It's very hard to put into justice how good this was. Well, I mean... To give it some sort of credence, Meltzer gave this five and three quarter stars. He, he, he gave Osprey versus fucking Kenta four and a half stars. So what the fuck does he know? True. But if he's willing to give it that much, you know, it's obviously a very, very, very good match. And it's yeah, my didn't top five matches for the tournament. For the t- I'm trying to think what tops this. The Ibushi Osprey match from the night before actually does top this for me. The Shingo versus Ishi match, the Shingo and Naito, Shingo Naito match, um, the Moxley Ishi match. I wouldn't put that above, but like, yeah, that's probably the top five. Thing is, like, you, we say that like, I've, I've, no one apart from Farley had a bad tournament. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, like, 
even Juice, who like historically does not mesh with a G1, like at all. I mean, Cobb had a tired tournament. I don't think he had a bad tournament. I just I think, think it was very tired, this, very laboured. I think this tournament sort of exposed, like not exposed, that's a, that, would, that would indicate that Jeff God's a bad wrestler. He's not, he's exceptional. But again, we were just talking about the most gifable parts of wrestling. That's kind of all, uh, all Cobb has. Yeah, which I, is, no, which I get is that. Fine. Which is fine when he's in tag matches for the most part and then has like a title match once a month in like PWG or something. But or like turns up on a weekly show and aren't like Ring of Honor and squashes a jobber. But then like you had him in this tournament and you had Moxley who's having the best matches of his fucking life and he can't do anything with Cobb. You know, it's that kind of thing. And like that's fine, like, but it does show that Cobb has a ceiling. I assume we are giving this 10. I, I, do, do I look like a contrarian? Well, I do, actually. But, um, yeah, of course. Of course it's a 10. I, I picked every match because um, the category, we should probably have said the category. This was the Hallowed Hall category of class of modern classics in Coracanal. Yeah, absolutely. So, from one 10-star classic to presumably what we will eventually categorise as another. We are moving from New Japan to Pro Wrestling Noah to the Noah Navigate for Evolution 2003 show night nine from the 1st of March. It was, bloody hell. 1st of March (laughs) of 2003 uh, from Budokan Hall uh, in front of 16,700 people. And we are looking at the main event between Kenta Kabashi and Mitsuharu Misawa for the GHC Heavyweight Championship match with Kobashi finally defeating Misawa in 33 minutes and 28 seconds in another Meltzer five-star Misawa match. Chris, this match. Couple things. Um, First of all, do do you want to quickly say what's on the other card? On this card since we did that for the last two matches? Because there's some decent-looking stuff on there. I mean, looking through the cards, you've got Kenta and Marafuji versus Hashi and Kanemaru, um, which got also got four and a quarter stars from Meltzer. Two Cold oh, Mel- Scorpio. Back in the day. Two Cold Scorpio versus just Cold Scorpio. Just Cold Scorpio um, against not the Ogawa, surely. <laughs> no, I think it. I think it's just an Ogawa. Um, I'm sorry, I like how we just didn't... Hang on, I do have his Wikipedia. Yeah, no, it's a different Ogawa. Yeah. I was I was like, what, really? No, of course not. Um, yeah, Janaki Ami on the undercategory. Fun fact, part of the reason... Um, we'll go into this when we cover that period on the classic, but, like, basically one of the reasons, um, ironically enough, Misawa wanted um, to do stuff differently in all Japan and um, Giant Baba's um, wife wouldn't let him was he wanted to take people like Kibashi, Kawada, Tawe, and himself, and like the aging guidance like Vader and Hansen and Johnny Ace, out of the main event and start pushing guys like Akiyama. I know Akiyama uh, was at the forefront of that, yeah. Yeah, and then like Misawa was like, fine, I'll go make my own company with Blackjack and Hookers and the Yakuza for some reason. Um, but yeah, so matches like this and no it actually didn't happen all that much because Masawa, while he, like he recognized like people like him and kabashi did have to be in the main event he wanted to push people like akiyama like takiyama for a lot of yamas <laughs> um 
I love young lions coming up. Like, like you look in here, like Akira Tower, who's one of the four pillars of heavens on the undercard. Yeah, absolutely. The under undercard. He's in the second match. So, yeah. And then you have like Riccio, um And like, so there's just, but there was a lot going on in Noah. Like this is after, this is after formation. This is after they established themselves. So like we're in Budokan Hall. Because um, for a lot of people, Noah just sort of replaced old Japan. It naturally, it naturally carried on from yeah. where you know the golden age of all Japan sort of there's, left off. There's definitely more strong style elements within Noah Starvo. Like it's a like a mix between King's Road and Strong Style. Well, there are a couple of moments in this where Strong Style <laughs> certainly <laughs> prevails. <laughs> oh my! First of all, um, we haven't actually talked about classic Noah's aesthetic what do you think of like the emerald well we talked about it briefly on the last podcast yeah, because obviously we had Takiyama versus um Fiskabashi but like we didn't actually like but it's, we talked more about how it compares to like current style just what do you think of it in general it's it's different yeah I'm not like in hindsight like I didn't I didn't like the green being taken away because of just because of how long it's been there, but like in hindsight, the current look is so much better. I'm not saying I'm a fan of the current look. I find the current look a bit clinical, a bit clean, a bit, a bit drab. Yeah, a bit boring, really. Whereas you know the green matting of Noah was well, especially during its yeah, really poor a, times, was the thing it was known for. There's a middle ground, I think. Like there's. Just because you're not making, like, Batman versus Superman doesn't mean you need to make Yellow Submarine, you know, as a middle ground. Okay. <laughs> I, I, okay. I'm, I'm confused by the, I'm confused by the Beatles reference, but okay. Just because you're not um, Ariana Grande doesn't mean you have to be Pink Floyd. Okay. Has, has this metaphor gotten away from me? I just really, really don't want you to ever mention Ariana Grande and the hallowed band of Pink Floyd in the same sentence again. I I literally just mentioned how far apart they were. Good. I hope you realise that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, this match... I've been a bit mean to Ariana Grande, but yeah, she's not a Pink Floyd. Anyway, 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 this match. This match. Um, first of all, last time you saw... Well, another last time you saw Kabashi. Last time you saw Kabashi, saw Kabashi was in this guy's. This is the first time you've seen Grumpy Old Man Masawa. At least for this, I don't know what you've watched outside of this, but like for this segment, it's the first time we've had Grumpy Old Man Masawa. For this segment, it is Grumpy Old Man yeah. Masawa. Yeah. So, what do you think of um, Grumpy Old Man Masawa? <laughs> it pays. <laughs> it pays testament to the strength of the history of these two. Because going into this match, there was one storyline, one strong storyline, that's Kabashi wanting to finally beat and finally ascend above Misawa. Because Kabashi was always seen as Misawa's number two. Misawa... Yeah, it's worth mentioning, because the way we're talking, he, Kabashi has beaten Misawa before. Yeah, I, I think I'm right in saying Kabashi debuted the Burning Hammer against Misawa. So, like, it's just Misawa is just so far and away, like, the biggest star at the time. Yeah, just beating Misawa wasn't enough. He needed to ascend to the top of the promotion. And this was the way of doing this. Misawa was not, you know, kayfabe. Obviously, he was the booker, so he was obviously going to put Kabashi over. But um, 
in kayfabe, Masawa was not letting his best friend usurp him without kicking the ever-loving shit out of him. Basically, he just looked at him and went, you want to take this from me, you are going to have to go through me. And Jesus Christ, did Kabashi go through him. There's this moment at the start where Kabashi goes to a backfist and Masawa is just so like, eh, eh, eh. <laughs> like he didn't, but like just the way, just the way like Masawa looking going, you're really going for that right now. Already? Of, of really? You, like, do you really think that's going to work, son? There's a, great. I, um, I know I talk a lot about camera work and I sound like such a fucking dork, but I don't care. There's a moment where I think we're about... <laughs> I think we're about 20, 25 minutes into the match and Kabashi is on all fours on the ramp and Masawa is on all fours in the middle of the ring and the cameraman catches them just literally locking eyes. They're miles away from each other, but just catches them locking eyes. They're both on their knees, exhausted, knowing that they've already thrown so much at each other, but they've got to throw even more at each other and just that look of here we go again and it was ju- it was just an amazing moment well, that's the thing like that's part- again that's part of the reason Noah ended up being created because uh, Masawa when he was the president of all Japan wanted to update the um like how the aesthetic like the aesthetic in all Japan was and kind of still is very old school like very fairly minimalist is like shot like an old territory thing whereas Noah wanted like more better camera work because like at the time one of the main competitors on WWE on um, TV rather was WWF WWE yeah and like they were like well we can't compete like we we, it is possible for us to compete like this but like we're not for some reason yeah like you sort of you sort of see that especially in the entrances they have like this very unique thing where they're like following them from backstage to um the outside, it sort of retains that sort of real fight feel while also having the bells and whistles. So it's, I quite like it. Yeah. Um. Obviously, we talked about Masao. You know, Masao being the head of Noah, and after this, you know, he wanted yeah. Kabashi to ascend above him so that he could sort of take a back a back seat. Well, um. And we talked about that actually yeah. in the and previous Kibashi match. Did. We talked about that in the previous match yeah. about how Masao, you know, wanted to put more people into the main event ahead of himself and here he was trying to put Kobashi on top and good god those Kobashi chants it worked it yeah it, it worked. worked it really he wanted, did he went on to have a, is it still the longest reign in company history I'm not sure like really the only reason Kobashi wasn't on top for long for longer was because he um it's weird he had like several injuries for, so like before this he was meant he was apparently penciled in to be the first jhc champion but then um he had, he desperately needed surgery so went off off the, on the shelf for like over a year so like masawa became first champion which too fair still makes sense and then kabashi came back this is him getting it back and then um got i, I can't remember what order it came in first of all he got um a tumor on his liver but or i think that turned out to be cancerous and then, um, you know those uh, machine gun chops he does, but somehow Kojima can't do and have be good, but um, Kabashi can do it and he wins. Um, turns out that's really bad for your shoulders, and he had to get emergency, emergency um, surgery on both shoulders because he d- and it's apparently attributed to the shotgun chops. Jesus Christ! I know. <laughs> Jesus. And somehow Kabashi's still alive. 
Honestly, like, Ken Like it, it is. It's like Kenta Kobashi is like the fucking Ozzy Osbourne of wrestling. It's like how, how? Just, I mean, we we watched because obviously Kobashi wins the championship at the uh, at the culmination, the climax of this match. Sorry, and then we watched um, the Takayama match, which is a title defense. You know, later on from this run, um, and it's interesting to see how Kobashi changes because obviously here he was the massive underdog yet against Takayama he had to be you know the champion and it's interesting to see the difference in dynamic I think I prefer him as the underdog I mean here he just he played the face so well and I think that's testament to how well Masawa played as you mentioned grumpy old man Masawa um talking about some of these spots i mean masawa coming off the apron early on and literally smashing his own face open on the guardrail oh yeah where he did the sort of flip over and land on his feet but no one does better like loads of other people do it no one does it as good as um masawa and then like just sort of is like you know what i i don't need my neck and just impaled himself on the speaking of masawa's neck Kabashi oh, okay. did Kabashi just think, do you know what? Masawa doesn't need a neck. Every time I do a suplex, I'm going to drop him as high as fucking possible on his neck. Okay. Fun facts, that's also a point raised of when they left Noah. Um left to make Noah, that they wanted contracts with better um healthcare. They were gonna be doing shit like this. Honestly, there was a there was a segment in this match where I think Masawa's hit with three consecutive suplexes, and all three get progressively higher and higher until the last one he's literally just dropped on the top of his head. Yeah, there was no protecting yourself from that one. Um, there was also a particularly nasty brain buster later on in the, like, at the latter end of his match. There was. There was. And it was, like, on. you think, like, I'm trying... I'm trying to think of like a comparable brain buster because it's really hard to do without like going 90s Joshi and having Garth come up from come from nowhere to call me a mark. Um, <laughs> He's been on this call the entire time. <laughs> it's just like I, I say, I say Akira Hokuto. Garth just goes to mark and goes away. <laughs> <laughs> he d- it just turns out he's been sitting in the corner of my room the whole time. Garth, <laughs> get like, out! You've had the virus, and my dad's at risk. Anyway. Um, yeah, this, we we haven't got onto the elephant in the room with this match yet, and I kind of don't want to. Because, <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Right, so first of all, um, Masawa sort of had the dive to be out, the Cody dive, where he landed on the ramp that sort of elevated to be just on the ring, which, by the way, I used to hate that. I love that now. I love that shit. Okay. Um, but anyway, so it lands on this thing, and then um, they sort of scrap for a wee bit, and then Masawa's just sort of like, you know what? Kabashi's going to die now. And then a tiger suplex, which sounds innocuous enough, off of the ramp. Onto the floor. Yeah, it was... Onto the floor. And again, that might not sound... This is after a brain buster on the ramp. Yeah, this this doesn't sound too bad, but the ramp is raised so the ramp is level with the ring apron because the ring apron leads straight into the ring, uh, similar to the AEW ramps now. Fucking hell. Like, what, six foot two? That has to be at least five foot something. Like, five foot three, five foot four. Yeah, dropping him round like, his neck. Like, Bashi's not much taller than the... 
So, like, imagine, like, it's not, it's about the same height as, like, the raw ramp. So imagine someone being suplexed off the raw ramp. Yeah, and not through a table with a crash mat underneath it, but legitimately just onto the hard concrete floor with a piss wafer thin um, napkin, basically, protecting you from the concrete underneath. Absolute lunacy. Um, I mean, both men, it took them absolutely ages to get up, and I'm sure that was partly a kayfabe thing and partly a, holy shit, my head and neck hurt. Well, imagine if one of them got up straight away, how much that would have ruined the moment. Yeah. Um, It was... I think it's not only the match itself that makes this great. And go on, you go on with your spot you want to talk about, and then I'll talk about that afterwards. Well, it's not especially a spot, more than like Masawa started hitting Kabashi with literally all his signature moves, and none of them, like um, Tiger Driver didn't work, Emerald Flojan didn't work. Um, like, eventually he was going for what I believe was being teased as the drag- Tiger Driver 93. I think you know, so, the yeah. One that he- the one that he killed Kawada with. We all remember that one, Chris. We all remember just how high yeah. on his neck Kawada landed. Oh, you think that's disgusting? You should have seen the one he gave to Johnny Ace. But, um... Yeah, like, Masawa just threw everything. Like, his elbows, which, like, Masawa's elbows are God. That's just an unwritten rule. Yeah. Um, And then, like, Kibashi started doing the same. Like, his brain buster. Like, he's teasing the Emerald Crush and stuff like that. Like, it, this match played off their history so perfectly. And I mentioned last time about how, like, Masawa... No, um, Kibashi rather just teasing a burning hammer. Um, make someone, if he hits you with a burning hammer, it means you're the biggest threat of his life. Yeah, and I think that if you've got a move that you don't break out all the time and you only break... Once you do break it out, it's over. It's one of those things where, you know, you know, I spoke about Hashimoto earlier about how, how can you miss it if it's never there? Or how can you miss it, sorry, if it never goes? It's like, and I'm sorry to reference AEW again, but it's like Hangman Page's Moonsault. Yes, it's great, but he does it every single fucking match. Whereas, yeah, I, I think that's one of the best things um, AEW have been doing is not having Kenny do the one-winged angel every week. Exactly. That's, that's, that's like the most protective finish in New Japan and it's sort of just keeping it going. Exactly. So Kabashi here, he pulls out the Burning Hammer, what, six times in his career or something ridiculous in Noah? Seven, Seven times in his Seven. career. Actually... You know what's funny? You know how Elgin does it just as his normal finish? Yes. Um, Eddie Kingston started being annoyed. It started annoying him on Instagram. <laughs> like there was Elgin was at a Noah show with Kabashi in commentary, and Kabashi sort of had his eyes wide open when Elgin was going to Burning Hammer, and he tagged and Eddie Kingston tagged Big Mike, um, ta- tagged Elgin, going, "This is what this is the look of somebody only here that moves move seven times, brother." <laughs> but yeah, like um. It's almost sad that people, like, we discussed this the last time, when people lift elements of King's Road, and we undoubtedly have, either directly or indirectly, um, they sort of just take the most superficial... For, for example, take Trent Seven. Now, don't get me wrong, I love Trent Seven. A good Trent Seven match is as good as anyone else. But he takes such superficial elements of King's Road that sometimes it can be actively annoying. Yeah. Like, for example, he has the burning hammer of the near fall. He has the ammo explosion of the transitional move. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, and like, that, that's just an, an example. Like, so many people try to emulate King's Road not quite getting what made it good. And like, it's sort of like, it's the, long, it's the interlaced storytelling. And you see the interlaced storytelling here and it's sort of like, 
yeah, this feels like a match between two people who have had half a million matches, between two people who know each other so well, between two people who have essentially started a wrestling revolution by leaving a company. Basically, the best way to describe this match is the end of an era. Yeah, like, um, I'm trying to think of a movie comparison, but I'm really struggling. Because you've watched (laughs) no movies whatsoever. I've watched some movies. I watched a movie last night. What was it? Um, it was, shit, what was it? It was on Disney Plus. Um, shit, what was it? It wasn't that good. Um, oh, it was Sword of the Stone. I watched Sword of the Stone last night. Oh my god, my girlfriend loves that film. To be fair, I I used to love that film when I was a kid, and then and I grew up. Was that a shoot, bro? <laughs> my bro, god. You just, no. Are you going no, all Ogawa no, just... on my girlfriend's Hashimoto? <laughs> That sounds like such an awful... It sounds awful, um, doesn't it? But as I said it, I was like, that no, is you, rank. If you overheard that, you're definitely going to have to explain that. I've got a no, horrible no, feeling she has um, heard it. No, it's it's just a case of, um, with Disney films, so many of them sort of like have layers. Sort of stone is just sort of like, like a base level Disney. I, I'm, just get, I'm just digging myself into a bigger hole. <laughs> just stop. Just stop. It's okay, Chris. It's okay. <laughs> just... Just leave it there, mate. It's fine. Basically, guys, we love that match. It's great storytelling. It's simplistic storytelling at its best. Am I right, Chris? And also, like, and also both men die a lot. Yeah. Both men have no regard for their neck whatsoever. Um, this would go on to kill Masawa, actually. In hindsight, it's quite... Inco- actually, you know, what's really uncomfortable in hindsight? I was on the first Noah show. Um, Akiyama turned heel on Masawa. And, no, not on Masawa, because he was too much about... Anyway, um, hit, um, Masawa was finished. And then, like, EMTs came out to pretend that, to pretend um, Masawa was in proper trouble. In hindsight, that's just one of those things. There's a, yeah, hindsight's a wonderful thing. You can't you can't look too much into it. They, there was no way they could have known they what did, was going to happen. No way they could have known what yeah, was going like, to happen to. It's sort of like when um, Joey Styles shouted, oh, "I'm sad that um, the suicide dive didn't work on Mike Awesome or something." It's just sort of like in ever. It's hallowing. But anyway, we that, that's sort of a bad a bad way to end it. So Rob, um, I'm going to ask you this right now: What kind of thing do you want the next time? Because these are probably going to be the young lions for the foreseeable future. Yeah, until New Japan start putting stuff out again, this is going to be what we're going to be doing. Um, I love my old school wrestling. So, you know, your stuff like Masawa, you know, stuff like Hanson, things like that. Surprise me so with shit Hoss, like that. You want Hoss matches? I basically want some Hoss. I want, I want Hoss and I want storytelling. And I'm, I'm spacing up Stan Hansen matches for a reason because there's not a lot of like amazing, amazing Stan Hansen matches. Like you've already seen the peak. To be quite honest with you, you take that fucking back. But you have, and I, there's still great Stan Hansen matches. It's just a case of not many of them top him and Gordy versus Kawada and um, Tenry. Well, I tell you what, the ones that I want for next time because you're going to message them with me tonight. I know you are. I want. <laughs> Some great deep storytelling, uh-huh. or all-out hoss battles. Okay, that's going to be two of the categories, but we do need three, so I'm gonna. 
Okay. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that is all we have got time for on this episode of the Young Lioncast. Thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. You can talk to us on Twitter at, at @younglioncast. We're featured on Purogate, uh, which is a website doing reviews of all the world of Puro Resu. Please check them out as well. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast absolutely anywhere you get your podcasts whether that's google whether that's spotify whether that's apple podcasts we are there um check out the website www.podmania.co.uk for archived episodes of every single episode of the young lion cast um you can talk to me on twitter at at real rob goodwin chris where can they find you on twitter and a uh, fuck was it and bushy and bushy yeah. okay and how many I, a's I, has that I, got I in it Fuck, hang on. Okay. Because <laughs> last, cause last time I had to go check, and then my internet crashed. Okay. Well, whilst... so we can, we can go on. We can actually do this. Hang on. And it is one A and two N's and Bushy. Okay. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. If you well, want to go like follow Chris there. Bushy. Yeah. And Bushy. There you go. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, guys. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another episode of the Classic Match Review. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you guys again soon.